but today we return uh, to our study of Second Thessalonians. Uh, we are currently examining chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Paul addresses a false teaching that had greatly disturbed the church in Thessalonica. Now, I'd like to begin by reviewing what we looked at in our last message, which if you have a copy of your sermon notes, what we covered in the last message was everything on that front side. And then on the back side will be the new material for today. So we're going to begin with a review of the last message, which you'll find there on the front side of your sermon notes. And first, look at the error. This this is a statement that summarizes the error that Paul is addressing in this chapter. False teachers had shaken the composure of the church by teaching that they were in the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the time of God's final judgment on a sinful world. That's often called the seven-year tribulation period. And, of course, this contradicted Paul's earlier teaching that the church would be raptured from this time of judgment. And the reason this uh, shook the church uh, to the extent that it did, that the, the false teachers actually produced a forged letter, as if it had been written from Paul, uh, stating that he agreed with their position. So you can imagine how this confused the, uh, these young converts in the church at Thessalonica. You know, it, had Paul changed his message? Has God changed his plan? And, and so they were, just, they were just very, very confused and uh, very, very anxious, uh, thinking that they were uh, possibly in the day of the Lord. Now, look at the correction. Just again, a summary statement. The purpose of chapter 2, of course, is to calm the believer's hearts and to stabilize their faith by denouncing the false teachers and reaffirming his pre. Jesus coming for his bride, coming for 
church when we will be gathered together and caught up to be with him forever. So he's saying, I'm making this appeal on behalf of the rapture. That you, notice verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice, Paul is simply saying, I appeal to you. And my appeal is on behalf of the rapture of the church. You need to calm down and realize you cannot be on the day of the Lord. And again, his appeal is because of the rapture. Paul clears up the confusion caused by the false teaching by reaffirming what he had previously taught them in 1 Thessalonians, the first letter that he wrote to them. And specifically, you see the passage of this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 where he talked about the fact that they had turned from their idols to serve a true and living God and to wait for Jesus from heaven who delivers them what from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 and 18, that great passage on the rapture, where he talked about the fact that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to be forever with the Lord. And then in chapter 5, he talks about the day of the Lord. And the key verse is verse 9, where he says, You, you are not destined to wrath, but to the obtaining of salvation. The day of the Lord will not be a time that you will enter because you'll be delivered by the rapture. You know, the very fact, and we emphasized this two weeks ago, the very fact that Paul previously taught that the rapture of the church would precede the tribulation explains their confusion when they believed that they were in the tribulation. If Paul had taught that the church would go through the tribulation, would go through the day of the Lord, there would have been no need for them to be alarmed. It would have been exactly what Paul had told them. So Paul's first point is, you cannot be in the day of the Lord because the rapture of the church will deliver you from it. And we'll escape that period of time. Look at the second thing. Again, you're just reviewing. If uh, you want more information, uh, go to our website, and you can listen to that message two weeks ago. But the second thing that he emphasizes is the apostasy, which reveals the identity of the Antichrist. The apostasy, which reveals the identity of the Antichrist. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. Verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things. See, Paul now reminds them of the Antichrist that he had earlier taught them about, the earthly figure that is associated with the day of the Lord. The Antichrist will be the devil's masterpiece, the last and greatest of all the world dictators. He will oppose all that Christ is, all that Christ stands for, and he will demand to be worshipped and to be obeyed as God. And he will attempt 
to exterminate the nation of Israel and all who followed the true God. Paul's simple point is this. You can't have the day of the Lord. You can't have the tribulation without the Antichrist. And since you don't see the Antichrist, you can't be in the day of the Lord. Paul's focus in verses 3 and 5 is the blasphemous act of unprecedented magnitude committed by the Antichrist, which reveals his monstrous identity. In verse 3, Paul calls it the apostasy. Apostasy meaning a revolt or rebellion against God. And what is the specific act of apostasy which will reveal the identity of the Antichrist? The answer is found in verse 4. It says, who opposes, referring to the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, and notice now, so that he takes his seat, where? In the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Now, this is also talked about in Daniel chapter 9. And we looked at Daniel chapter 9, and we discovered there that at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, at the beginning of the day of the Lord, the Antichrist makes a covenant with the nation of Israel promising their security. But in the middle of the tribulation, after three and a half years, he breaks the agreement by going into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem entering the holy place, that most sacred place of worship, declaring himself to be God and demanding that the world worship and obey him. Daniel called this the abomination of desolation. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. And then in that same context, down in verse 21, he says, for then, in other words, when you see that abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place, Antichrist, taking his seat there, displaying himself as God, demanding worship. He says, then there will be great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. And Jesus reinforces that same truth in Mark chapter 14. Now, going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and again, we're just reviewing, why is Paul sharing all this truth about the Antichrist? to reassure these new believers in Thessalonica that they cannot be in the day of the Lord. Paul's argument being, since the Antichrist is the central earthly figure during the day of the Lord, if there is no Antichrist on the scene, you are not in the day of the Lord. And then the third truth that he emphasizes is the restrainer must be taken out of the way. The restrainer must be taken out of the way. Look at verse 6, and let me just read through the first part of verse 8. Verse 6, and now you know what restrains him now. Who's he talking about? The Antichrist. He says, you know what is restraining his revealing now. And then he goes on, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we see clearly see that in our culture and around 
the world. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then, when the restrainer is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, will be revealed. Once again, Paul's point is very simple. Satan cannot do whatever he wants whenever he pleases. We have a sovereign God, and God has a restrainer who is restraining the forces of evil and lawlessness to keep everything on God's time schedule. And who is the restrainer? Well, in verse 7, notice the masculine participle is used to describe the restrainer. It says, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Therefore, the restrainer is a person who today is present, but one day will be taken out of the way, allowing Satan to raise up the Antichrist. Now, to me, and this is my conviction, it is obvious who the restrainer is. The restrainer is the person of the Holy Spirit, who at this time has taken up residence where? In the church. We are His temple. And it is the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that makes the church the light of the world and the salt of the earth that exposes and restrains evil. When the church is raptured, the Holy Spirit will still remain in the world since the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and, is, and as God is omnipresent, but His restraining work will come to an end with the rapture of the church which then allows Satan to raise up the Antichrist. So, to sum up verses 1 through 7 in our review, Paul reassures the believers, you cannot be in the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, because the church will be raptured before the day of the Lord, which will take out the restraining force of the Holy Spirit, allowing Satan to raise up the Antichrist. So that's our review, and now let's begin to look at our new material for today, which is in verses 8 through 12, where he basically gives us a description of the Antichrist. And one of the greatest descriptions that you'll find uh, anywhere in the Bible. Uh, and let's read verses 8 through 12 in their entirety first, and then uh, we'll come back and uh, um, break this down. Look at verse 8. And then that lawless one, referring to the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now go back and let's look at first his character. His character there, the first part of verse 8 is he's what? He calls him the lawless one. In other words, the Antichrist has no moral bearings. There are no moral absolutes. He is a law in and of himself. 
and then the lawless one will be revealed. Uh, notice in verse 3, uh, it says he calls him the man of what? Lawlessness. Notice also in verse 3, he's called the son of destruction. Uh, verse 4 that we've already looked at, it says he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 13. This is a great cross-reference. Uh, this entire chapter, Revelation 13, is about the Antichrist, describing him. Now, before we, and, and you know, we're not going to have time to go in depth through this, but as we walk through uh, chapter 13, uh, looking at the characteristics of the Antichrist, keep in mind that when you come to the book of Revelation, and this is an astounding fact, there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 404 verses. Of the 404 verses, 278 allude to Old Testament Scripture. Not that Old Testament Scripture is directly quoted, but 278 of the 404 verses allude to Old Testament Scripture, especially, especially the book of Daniel. Daniel holds the key, really, to understanding the book of Revelation. And a lot of the visions that Daniel had relate directly to uh, this particular book and the truth that we find here. So, first, look at his authority in verses 1 and 2. It says, and he, now, you have to go back to chapter 12. It's talking about the dragon. And the dragon here represents the devil, represents Satan. It says, and he, Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast. And this beast is the one that is the Antichrist. And that's one of the names that's given to the Antichrist in the Scriptures. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, the devil, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. So the Antichrist is given his authority, he's given his power by who? The devil. Now again, you say, what is all this about the seven heads and the uh, uh, ten horns and diadems? Again, all of this is alluding back to the book of Daniel. Uh, if you turn over to Revelation 17, Revelation 17, we discover there, I believe, exactly what the seven heads are. Uh, look at verse 9. He says, here's the mind which has wisdom. This is, again, Revelation 17, verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven mountains always refer, mountains refers to authority in the, in the Scripture. And the woman, of course, is the harlot, the false religion. We don't have time to get into all that. But notice, verse 10. And they are seven kings. Notice he says, five have what? Fallen. One is, the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for an hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. 
when he refers to these seven kings, five have fallen, one is, one is still to come, he's referring to the world powers that have trodden under, uh, under Israel and have uh, reaped great persecution and destruction upon them. The first being Egypt, uh, and then Assyria, and then the Babylonians, Medes, Persians, Greece. Those would be the five that had fallen. The one who is, who, what kingdom would that be when John was writing? Rome, the Roman Empire. And then he says, and there's still yet one to come, and that's Antichrist. That We talked about this, that ten-nation uh, confederation of uh, European countries that he gains control of. And uh, these ten nations give him uh, their power. They give him authority uh, to serve him. That is their one purpose, it says. So going back to Revelation 13, the beast is sort of a composite of all these nations that have uh, been so destructive to the nation of Israel. The ten diadems or the ten horns represent the ten nations that he rules over. Uh, but the main thing I want you to see is that his authority comes from none other but the devil. Uh, this is, will be an individual that will be possessed by the devil himself and will be given all the power and authority of the devil. Look at his acclaim in verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, the Scripture does not tell us exactly what this is. Uh, we'll see that this same event is referred to in uh, chapter 13. It's uh, one of the things that the beast, and there's a false prophet that uh, causes the world to worship the beast. One of the things they use uh, to put the beast up on a pedestal, that apparently he suffered some fatal blow and, uh, and recovered apparently miraculously from that. Now, we don't know if that means he himself uh, uh, suffered that blow or his, his kingdom. I have, a, I, I have a speculation, and it is just mere speculation. I want to clearly say that, uh, what this could be. We know from the book of Daniel, and we know from Ezekiel 38, that in the first half of the tribulation period, that there is uh, a military uh, force that comes against Antichrist by attacking Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 38 talks about this, and uh, we believe that it's referring to the first half of the tribulation period, because if you read that chapter about three or four different times, it talks about Israel living securely in the land, being safe. It mentions several times that this is in the latter days, it's in the last days, so that we know that it's referring uh, to future prophecy, to this tribulation period. And the only time that Israel would be dwelling securely in the land would be in those first three and a half years, after the Antichrist made that agreement with them, uh, promising them peace and security. And if you look at Daniel, and if you look at Ezekiel 38, and it's fascinating, if you study the nations that are listed there, and you study that out, and who's that referring to today? It is Russia that invades Israel and comes against Antichrist, and he's allied with Egypt and many of the other Arab countries, one being very specifically Iran is mentioned. In the Old Testament text, it's referred to Persia, but that would be modern-day Iran. So you have Russia coming against the Antichrist and specifically the nation of Israel in the first half of the tribulation period 
Uh, and again, Russia allied with a number of Arab nations. And it describes the fact that the armies of Russia, and these, they surround the nation of Israel, they, it's particularly the city of Jerusalem, and it looks like they are doomed. It looks like it, it, the, it's, it's all over. Uh, they, they're defeated. And then God brings fire down from heaven and miraculously destroys that, ar- that Russian army and uh, the Arabs that are allied with them. My speculation, and again, just mere speculation, that that is what this is referring to, that in that military campaign, it's possible that the beast himself, or at least his empire, appears to suffer a fatal uh, blow. And then he is miraculously delivered from this, comes out the victor. And I find it fascinating, and we'll see this in a minute in Revelation 13. One of the things they talk about when they worship the beast is, you know, who can make war against the beast? And, 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 and the false prophet uh, causes fire to come down from heaven. And I think what basically happens is the beast takes credit for that victory. God supernaturally delivers Israel by, by destroying that army, but the beast comes out of that looking great. He claims the victory for himself, and then the world just gives him their acclaim. Who can make war against the beast? He can even bring fire down from heaven, and they worship him. But that's, that's my speculation. Look at his adoration. Look at his adoration in verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, the devil, because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? Remember, we talked about this. That, that term antichrist means not only one who opposes Christ, but who, one who wants to be what? Worshipped instead of Christ. And this has always been the devil's goal. And that's his primary purpose in raising the Antichrist up, that he might get the worship of the world, that they might believe his lies and embrace him. And then look at his arrogance. Look at the Antichrist's arrogance in verses 5 and 6. And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And Daniel talks a lot about this as well. And authority to act for two, 42 months was given to him. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And then look at his activity in verse 7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Notice, during this three-and-a-half-year period of time, he's able to overcome all his opposition, and especially those of true faith. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And we know from the book of Revelation, there will be a great host of martyrs during this time who lose their lives um, as a result of uh, Antichrist and, of course, his attempt to exterminate Israel as well. And then look at his admirers uh, in verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world and the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So there you have the Antichrist authority, this lawless one whose authority comes from the devil. The world worships, they believe his lies. 
and he gives himself to blaspheme God and to try to literally exterminate God and all who would follow him. And now look at his power. In your, going back to your notes, his power, which, of course, is satanic. And this is even further emphasized in verse 9 of going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. So as the devil gives the beast his authority and power, uh, the Antichrist is able to deceive the world by uh, producing tremendous power and signs and false wonders. Uh, look now, go back to chapter 13, and let's look, begin at verse 11, and we'll, we'll see this emphasized uh, through the ministry of this false prophet that is sort of called the second beast. Look at verse 11. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. In other words, very deceptive. There, there, there's this impression, you know, like a lamb, like the Messiah, but he spoke as a dragon. And this is the false prophet. This is the Antichrist companion uh, and that f- causes the world to worship him. And notice it says in verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead Of course, that's the Mark 666. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Uh, And then it says, here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of man, and his number is 666. So again, I, I don't have time to go into great detail, but the thing that I just wanted you to see is how the beast is given the authority of Satan. And through this false prophet, they're able to work great signs and false wonders and demonstrate great power that wins the world over, deceives the world as they worship him. Look at his influence, the Antichrist influence, which is he's a master of deception. He's a master of deception. And look at verses 10, 11, and 12, which emphasizes 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10, 11, and 12. And with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. And folks, do you understand what that's saying? That is a very terrifying passage, especially for anyone who would not know the Lord Jesus Christ now. 
God is saying he's extending his grace at this time uh, through the ministry of the church as we evangelize the world. But he says, for all those who did not receive the truth, that were not saved, he allows this deluding influence. And he's talking about the deluding influence of Antichrist and his empire. empire. And, he says, and he says, this is God's judgment on them that they would believe that which is false. Because he says that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but what? Took pleasure in wickedness. So, God gives the opportunity for us to respond to His grace and to know salvation in Jesus Christ. But if we fail to respond to that message, we fail to respond to God's grace and His offer of salvation, God says He will judge by letting this diluting of influence come upon unbelievers as they'll embrace Antichrist and they'll follow Him to not only His destruction, but their own destruction. And then notice uh, the fourth thing about the Antichrist is His destruction, that He will be thrown into the lake of fire. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, the uh, latter part of verse 8, "...whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming." Uh, Turn over to Revelation 19, which is the cross-reference here. Revelation 19. Look at verse 11, and we'll read through verse 20. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it called Faithful and True, And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. Who's this talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. And his eyes are a flame of fire. And upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's you and I. That's the saints, the believers that have been raptured. And as we wear that fine linen of uh, righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we're following Him on white horses. Verse 15, And from His mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it He might smite the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. Let me just pause right there. Again, we just don't have time to get into a lot of the intricacies But we know what happens is this great army from the east 
that comes against the Antichrist. And this apparently is the Chinese. Uh, they uh, Remember, this is an army that boasts uh, 20 million in number. And uh, they have that at this present time. And uh, they come across the Euphrates River uh, to confront the Antichrist in the Valley of Medigo, in Armageddon. And then it's at that point that the Lord returns. And then notice at verse 20, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in the presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And then look at uh, Revelation 20. Look at verse 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where, notice, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, folks, praise God. If you're His, if you're Christ, we're on the winning side. Uh, We know how it all ends. But there you just see an overview uh, of the character of the Antichrist, his, his character being one of lawlessness, his power being satanic, his influence a master of deception, and his destruction being thrown into the lake of fire. I want you to turn to one last passage before we conclude and move into the invitation. Will you turn to Second Peter chapter 3? I just want to continue to emphasize what I have emphasized from the beginning of our study of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which has been focusing own prophecy, been focusing on the end times, that the purpose of prophecy is not to create speculation about the future, although I gave you some this morning, but rather to provide motivation to live for Christ today. This truth should inspire us. It should motivate us as children of God to be light, to be salt, to be a witness to share with our lost loved ones and friends and co-workers and neighbors and be true to God. And I just want you to see this emphasized. Second Peter chapter 3 is all about prophecy. It's all about the end times, the last days. And, and I just want you to notice a couple of things. Look at verse 11. I just want you to see the application he makes. And you see this with every single New Testament writer, every single one. Anytime they bring up prophecy, anytime they bring up end times, it's for the purpose to motivate believers to follow Jesus, to encourage believers to stay true to Him and to inspire our witness. Notice verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, will melt with intense heat. And then look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you know what's going to happen in the end, since you've been given that insight, you've been given that glimpse, maybe not every single detail, but we know the basic program. We know how it's all going to end with Jesus coming out on top, the final man standing. He says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And that's the question for us this morning as we conclude this message. The rapture is imminent. 
that means it could happen at any moment. There's nothing to be fulfilled. Just like the Thessalonians, it said they turned from their idols to serve a true and living God and to wait for His Son from heaven to deliver them from the wrath to come. And the question is, if Jesus would return today, would He find you in peace? Would He find you blameless? Not perfect, but blameless. And there's a difference. None of us are going to be perfect on this side of eternity. But God does command His believers to be blameless. And what blameless means is that you are honest and transparent with God. That when you do sin and you do fail, you admit that. You acknowledge that. And you forsake that sin to turn to Jesus as your first love to follow Him. So if Jesus were to return today and you were to stand face to face with Him, we talked about this. What's going to happen after the rapture of the church? The judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers only. Our salvation is secure. This will deal with either reward or loss of reward. And each of us will stand face to face with Jesus Christ. Those eyes that are like flames of fire that we read about earlier, that will penetrate our lives, see right through us, expose us for what we are. We are so busy trying to project an image before others, God doesn't give a rip about that. He cares about what we are on the inside, reality. And all the masks are going to be stripped away in that day. And you're going to be exposed for who you are and what is at the very core of your being in your heart. And will you be at peace? Will he find a passionate love for him? Would you have demonstrated a faithfulness to him, even in the midst of difficulty and suffering? Have you been a faithful light and witness for Jesus Christ? See, to study the end times should again motivate us to be diligent, to follow him, so that when he comes, it won't be a day of shame a day of embarrassment because of all the opportunities we squandered away, but we'll be able to face that day with confidence, knowing that we weren't perfect, but we were honest, transparent, and yes, our sin debt was canceled, imputed to us the righteousness of Christ, and by God's grace, we followed Him, and we're able to say like Paul, hey, I've had my ups and downs. There's been times of failure. But what? His love will never let you go. We just sang about that, right? And Paul would say, but I, but I finished my course. I finished my course. I finished that race that was laid out for me. And by God's grace, I've crossed the finish line to be able to hear, well done. Well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Isn't that what you want to hear from your Savior, from your Lord? Well done. Father, uh, again, thank you for this uh, study of Second Thessalonians. Father, you know uh, I'm always concerned uh, when teaching about the end times, uh, concerned that uh, it has the desired outcome that you would want. Uh, that it wouldn't just create speculation and so a lot of questions about the future, but it will provide motivation and encouragement uh, to live for you today.
So, Father, if there's any that do not know you and they're sitting here under the hearing of your truth, Lord, penetrate their hearts this very moment by your grace and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ that they would believe his truth, that he is the Son of God who came to die on the cross for the penalty of their sin, to impute his righteousness to them, to give them a right standing before you, and to secure their eternal salvation. And Lord, bring them to that so that they won't come to that place where they'll believe that deluding influence of Antichrist and follow him to their destruction. And then, Lord, of course, use this to motivate us, your children, to be faithful to you. And, Lord, give us grace to use the opportunities that provided for us uh, in our personal lives, even through the church, Love Indeed, My Hope campaign, so many opportunities that are offered in so many different arenas, Lord. And so, Lord, just let us be sensitive to your leadership, sensitive to your guidance, and to remain faithful to you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.